0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Lightbulb Moment, a podcast where I, Jyothi Ramaswamy, talk to incredible women in STEM media and entrepreneurship. So we're back after a little bit of a break, um, but we have a few episodes left of the season that I'm excited for y'all to listen to. So it should be be a good time. For this episode, I got to talk to Kamsi McAdams, who has a lot of great experience with STEM education and STEM curriculum, and, you know, she used to be a teacher, and now she is at Discovery Education as the head of STEM curriculum, which is super cool. I got to talk to her all about her experience and her thoughts on, you know, education in its current state in the U.S. today, so it's a fun podcast, and I think you'll all enjoy it thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you've done a lot of great stuff for STEM education. So I think one of the first questions I was wondering about was just like what first got you into interest in like STEM education to begin with?
1: Well, um, my path has really, uh, started about a little over 20 years ago. Um, I was a grad student. In fact, I was a PhD student at Berkeley, not involved in STEM at all. I was, um, pursuing a PhD in political science. And um, I didn't really get along great with my advisor. <laughs> and yeah. so I was looking for some ways to like make myself feel good about the fact that I was not doing my uh, research. And I started uh, volunteering in an after-school program in West Oakland, California. And uh, I was paired up, my undergraduate is in engineering, and I was paired up to do a math and science tutor with a little girl, uh, named Sasha. And on our first day meeting that it, you know, met after school in like the church, I mean, in the school cafeteria, you know, and you all were sitting down and I met this little girl named Sasha and she, and I said that I was going to be her math and science teacher and she, tutor. And she goes, well, good luck because I hate math and science. And she was very adamant about it. And I thought, well, gosh, you're eight years old. <laughs> I mean, at eight math and science is like the most fun it could ever be. It's like, yeah splashing around in puddles and observing the world and like times tables and fractions and stuff. And she was like, Oh, I hate all of that stuff. So I kind of took it upon myself to be, you know, sort of expose her to science the way that I had. My parents are both scientists. So we had science around us all the time. We would pull over to the side of the road and like pick up rocks. And my dad, the geologist would teach me what they were. And my mom would encouraged me to like take things apart and, you know, look at the, look at the plants and things like that. And so I did that with her and we didn't really, I mean, we obviously did the math and science tutoring and I helped her with her homework and stuff, but, um, we got special permission to like go and do water testing. And we went to on field trips together and, um, I enjoyed being with her and I loved the way that she was learning to like sort of more rote, Math and science stuff because sort of I was making her, but she was really liking the other things. And so I took a leave of absence from my graduate program. I got an emergency credential to become a teacher. And like in 1999, I became a teacher and I never looked back. And I've been in education the whole way through. And I always think about her because, you know, around eight or nine years old you know, a lot of girls, especially get turned off of, uh, math and science. And I really wanted to figure out a way, how can we catch them? Um, if I became a middle school teacher and then a high school teacher, and then back to being middle school teacher, and then I worked elementary school and my current project is uh, preschool through eighth grade. How do we catch, especially girls and kids that were, you know, not, ex- that didn't have science at scientists, parents sitting at the dinner table with them. Um, so that's been my passion, and that's what I—that's how I got involved. And I think about her a lot. I have a pic- yeah. pictures of her up in various offices that I've sat in, and I think about that a lot, just to think about how we can make sure that we—we we don't turn kids off early.
0: Yeah, that's definitely really important. But like, with your experience with teaching and just being a teacher, did you like learn anything else about how education works overall, and like what else might need to be done to encourage more people into STEM?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the big thing for me is that like relationships and relevance really matter. So for me, um, you know, I was on a one-on-one relationship with this young girl, Sasha, and that was really special. Right. So I really got to know her. She lived in a basement, one bedroom apartment with seven other people. And, you know, I, you know, was just always excited about how excited she got when we got to do stuff outside and it was really relevant to her she, you know i met kids when i was teaching in oakland and people on this podcast may or may not have any familiarity with the bay area in california but oakland is literally like a 10 minute drive away from san francisco and it's surrounded by water and i met kids all the time who had never been to san francisco and had never been down to the water to the to the you know waterfront it's got one of the busiest ports in the country like no one had you know lots of kids had never had experience with that so for me it was always about like can i find a relationship with it with a child personally about something that they care about that they're passionate about thats a matters to them and then also can we figure out a way to make the learning really relevant which i think when i was training to become a teacher we didn't spend enough time on that we talked a lot about how to like break down math concepts and how to you know introduce standards for science but i think for me the real key has been in the last 20 years has been really thinking about the people that we work with and that that doesn't always only matter for the students that you teach but it also matters for families you know i've done lots of like home visits i've gotten to know moms and grandmas and you know dads i had a i'll never forget the dad who said that he didn't understand the math that i was doing and i was like sorry you're a plumber there's a hundred percent you understand the math that we're doing he's like well you do it differently than me and i was like why don't you come in and show us so he came in and showed us that it was just so cool to have him standing there talking about fractions in a way that like matters he's like pulled open his box of all the like wrenches and stuff and like talked about five-eighths and wrenches and things like that and why it mattered that it was like bigger than the, you know, whatever. And he was really cool. And, but he didn't see himself as helpful to his student, as to his kid, you know? And so I think relationships really matter. And then also just really finding things that matter to kids personally. And I think that that's a lot easier now to do because you know, when I first started teaching, we didn't have as much internet access. now Kids can get interested in things that are millions of miles away from them and, or just right in their backyard.
0: Yeah, I think that was the other questions I was wondering about, because I mean, things have shifted so much online with like YouTube blowing up. And like, I know even for me, I go online with resources like Khan Academy, just to learn more about any concepts that I'm more confused about with math and science and anything in general. So I'm wondering what like your general thoughts are on that and like, where do you see that going into the future?
1: Well, I think that one thing that we have to always remember is that technology is a tool that we can use, right? And Mm -hmm. a lot of people, you included, are being raised as digital natives. My son is two and he knows exactly how to figure out which videos he wants to watch on my phone. We don't let him watch TV, but he definitely understands videos on the phone. And and you could see the way that his brain responds to like, When people are talking, he like listens to them and repeats what they say versus just like images on the screen. Um, I think he knows um, a lot of like uh, vocabulary from, you know, characters like Blippi or, you know, other videos about trucks or whatever. Um, And that's great. But we have to also make sure that we're really as um, people who are educators, whether it's a parent or a friend or a coach or a teacher, Is how do you use that technology to find something out uh, so that you go down the right path? So you're saying, you know, I use Khan Academy to like bolster my math concepts. Well, that's great, but there are some people who are, you know, going into technology and not finding the right answers and not, and like going down. And so we have to really teach kids to be really responsible um, and think uh, critically. And then also to not lose track of the fact that you're surrounded by a world that isn't influenced by technology, you know. I think it's really awesome when I take my son out for a walk that he's really interested in, like looking for seed pods and the difference between leaves and needles on trees, and like wants to know uh, why the squirrels go up on top of one tree but not on the other, and why in some places we find all the birds and none in the other places. So I think we, I think technology allows us to get closely connected. It allows us to learn a lot of information that we didn't have access to in the past, and it allows us to be really independent. Like you're saying, like, look, if I need to know something, I can look it up for myself. That's pretty empowering as a kid, Um, as an adult, even, you know, when I read something, I'm like, I want to know more about it, then I can look it up. And I think it's um, a way that we just have to be really careful, though, always to think of technology as like a tool that we have to learn how to use the same way that you would you know, not just let any kid use like, you know, I don't know, needle nose pliers or a hammer. You might wanna also think about the way that we allow kids at different ages or in different situations use technology.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's a great resource if used correctly for sure. Uh, One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is I saw with your experiences that you also um, had experiences with Common Core and just bringing that into your school district. and I know that, at least from my experience, like taking state tests and like seeing Common Core brought in, there are a lot of people who aren't used to it. And as a result, there's like backlash against it. So I'm wondering what your experience is like uh, working with Common Core and if you experience any obstacles with it.
1: Well, that's interesting because um, I worked uh, in Washington, DC at the central office, which is like the district, um, right when Common Core was coming out. and. Um, DC took it as a blessing because the standards were created by educators. They had a lot of like professional input on them. So they had people who were like really experts in curriculum and um, research helping put them together. And we sat down and looked at them and we really thought about like the big picture behind Common Core on the math side is that there should be a balance between like process and fluency. Um, conceptual understanding and then application. And that's how I had been teaching already for, I don't know, 12, 13 years before Common Core even came out. So I always wanted kids to be able to do like the math facts really fast and like the times tests and like know your times tables. But I also wanted them to understand what they meant. And then I also wanted them to be able to apply them to like situations that were real world. And that's what the Common Core meant to me. On the English and literacy side, the idea of Common Core being more focused, I think, on strategies and on thinking about how to make sense out of nonfiction text as a science and engineering person. God, that meant so much to me because what I noticed as I got higher and higher in school was that more and more of the text that I was being asked to make sense of was like pretty boring and not super engaging. And especially once I got to college, I was like, oh, I got to read these chapters and I didn't really like it. But I had come up with all these tricks and tools like taking notes and annotating and asking myself questions. And that was really all I saw Common Core as doing. I think a lot of the backlash came with people saying, this is not how I learned it. This is not how I learned it. Especially adults saying, this is not how I learned math. This is not how I learned English. This is, what about literature? What about poetry? And I think that all that comes from is like, we just have to remember what's the the, the point of Common Core was to give states a way to compare the way that we were teaching and learning and to make it so that if you were a kid growing up in New York and and your parents moved to California, that you wouldn't have to start a whole new system of learning, that we would have some sort of a common thread to our learning. And I think that somewhere along the way, probably along the lines of state tests, the message got lost. And the message was really like, Hey a bunch of really smart people came together and said hey this is an approach to learning that would be good if we all just kind of agreed to it in 80% like so Massachusetts Maryland Vermont we'd all kind of be the same so if you moved around it would be okay and somewhere along the way the message got kind of confused and i think that's a shame because i think in in essence the intention is really really good
0: Yeah i definitely agree with that um, yeah from my experience too with state tests i think there was so much commotion, mainly because people like people just weren't used to it. And it's just, a for some people, it was a different way of learning. Uh, it also just reminds me of the scene from Incredibles 2 with the dad teaching Dash about math and Common Core bringing bought into that. Uh, yeah, from there, you also got involved with the U.S. Department of Education dealing with STEM curriculum, too. So I'm also wondering what your overall experiences were like as a part of the Department of Education.
1: So uh, I will just make a slight clair- clair- clarification is that the U.S. Department of Education doesn't work on cl- curriculum. So that's one of the things about the U.S. that we know we don't uh, that there's no national curriculum. There are lots of standards and lots of guidelines. But um, my job now is like 100 percent on curriculum. So we can talk about that later. But yeah. at the Department of Education, it was such an amazing opportunity because I was an appointee through uh, Barack Obama's um, uh, 44th presidency. So yeah. um, I got appointed right at the end of his first term, and then I stayed for two years into the second term. And first of all, working for that administration was just such an amazing experience because Arnie Duncan, as the Secretary of Education, was just a remarkable leader. Um, and the whole organization was really focused on how can we make positive change for kids at all different levels. So my job was really cool because STEM went from preschool, pre-K all the way through graduate school. So the people that I got to work with were everybody who from people who give grants to like minority serving institutions, to historically black colleges, et cetera, for undergraduate and graduate work, all the way down to the what we were going to do for the preschool for all and like pre-K um, you know learning. And that was a way for me to see how STEM and this idea of problem solving and an emphasis on being really um, literate in math and science and using technology as a really robust tool. It made me think that, boy, there's lots of ways that this could impact. My other really cool part of that role was that I was in charge of our work with other science agencies like NASA that does space work, NOAA that works on oceans and air quality, the National Institutes of Health, and we all work together to try to figure out how it's the best Ways that we can all impact education. and we got to do some really, really neat um, cooperative work, which really was amazing for me because that's what I really wanted to take into that to that role. Um, I think um, you know, we're in a time period where science and math really matter, and like we're surrounded in a world that's, uh, you know, got a lot of issues. we got issues with energy and climate and health. And I think all of those, you know, it's science and math is sort of at the key to all of that. And um, it was very, it was a very humbling and wonderful experience to work for the administration.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And I saw that one of the things you actually did that I thought was really cool was the Federal Females in STEM Mentoring Cafe, where you connected mm-hmm. federally employed women in STEM as mentors to local middle school girls. Uh, so I'm, I'm like wondering how that started and what that whole experience is like for you and the woman involved.
1: Um, it actually started just as like a conversation between another woman who's still at the Department of Energy and, and Marie Horowitz, who she and I we're talking we were like you know we got all these women who work for our agencies and we have all of these you know young women especially in the dc area what is there any way we could get them together and we were inspired by a thing that happens out in oakland incidentally from my old school district called dinner with a scientist and they do it kind of like a mix between speed dating and like science show and tell so the idea is that you would like sit down at a table, you'd be a student, you'd come with your teacher, you'd meet a scientist, that scientist would, or engineer, STEM professional, and they would bring something like a sh- like literally like show and tell, like this is what I work on. Here's a, uh, you know, a picture of an X-ray or here's a, a line of code that I'm working on. And then every like 10 minutes or so, the, the women or the people would rotate. So you at the end of like an hour, as a kid, maybe you've met like six or seven people and then you kind of like serve cookies afterwards and everybody can mill, mill around and meet each other and make connections and, you know, uh, you know, figure out when you're going to come and talk to each other again. So we did that with, um, women in department of energy and in department of education. And we just like literally set it up in the cafeteria with cookies and, you know, maybe pizza or something like that. And we just had, uh, these really great experiences where we brought in kids from the DC area And we brought in with our teachers and we brought in all these uh, really dynamic uh, women. And then what our plan was, was to make it like a template that like you could send this off to like a regional office in San Francisco or a regional office in Boise, Idaho. And you could say, hey, you can run this. And all you need is like some donuts and some juice and some maybe the pizza. And here's the invitation and here's the platform and here's the program. And so I think that they're really they've been really running them quite a bit since I left. And it just was a really great idea to let the students meet people that maybe look like them and who had really cool jobs. And also people who kind of had jobs with titles that you wouldn't think were very cool. Like there's some like operation specialists, like what does that even mean? But their jobs are really neat, but you wouldn't know that from the title. And so we also wanted to use it as a way to promote government opportunities and jobs, which I think is also a really good um, side, side bonus of it.
0: Yeah, I think all of that just sounds incredible, Um, especially like with some of the work I do um, with teaching girls uh, different STEAM workshops through my own organization. I think that's just uh, really great that you were able to do that. Um, Now, of course, there's a new administration and um, I'm wondering what you're thinking about uh, Biden's pick Miguel Cardona as the Secretary of Education and what you hope happens with education in the next four years.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, Biden, you know, President-elect Biden has made a made a commitment that he was going to pick an educator for the role, which I think was good that he did. Um, you know, he's married to an educator, Dr. Jill Biden is. You know, she's such an incredible role model for all of us in terms of just, you know, her commitment, and especially because she works in an in an area that is often underlooked, which is the community college space. So. I think that Miguel Cardona was a, a really great choice. I think that um, there are people on, you know, on all different aspects of his career where who they've all come forward and said, you know, he's really got great understanding. He's, you know, comes from a really, really diverse um, public school background. He's got experience at all different levels in the system. I read some things about some teachers being like, they he said they said he was gonna put in a teacher. Well, I have to be really candid with you. You can't put an active teacher who hasn't served in any of these roles into that, into that position because that position requires this huge broad view. My slice was just STEM, just a tiny little slice of STEM, but it's literally birth and preschool and like like zero to graduate school. The, graduate, the Department of Education is well much more than our K-12 system. It's also higher education. It's also vocational education. It's also adult and career and technical education. It's also community colleges. So I think his role in K- Connecticut has like served, set him up well to be able to look broadly across this. But I also think it's going to be up to him to pick a really, really good staff. I think he's going to have to pick a really, really good team of people who are ready to, quite frankly, do some cleanup. You know, we have, um, yeah. people are, are um, frustrated and there's been some things that probably just weren't addressed. And also we're in this place where the whole education system, because of COVID, we've all switched to this, this interaction. The, 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 the STEM Mentoring Cafe that I cre- d- described to you, we can't do that right now. We can't bring a bunch of ladies and a bunch of girls in a room and have a mingle over cookies and donuts right now. And doing it virtually is totally possible. You could set one up. You could set up a virtual mentoring cafe. It'd probably in some ways be easier. You wouldn't have to provide permission slips for the girls. You wouldn't have to provide field trip. like. Uh, you wouldn't have to find buses to get them to a space, but it's not the same. Like It's not the same to like, you can't mill around the same. You can't like say like, you know, I saw that lady over there. She was holding this big giant bone and I wanted to talk to her and she didn't come to my table. So I'm going to go over there and talk to her. You can't do that in a virtual space. So I think that we all have to think about, like, I think he's going to probably make some decisions with that department to bring in people who have a lot of technology experience. I wouldn't be surprised if we had more emphasis on, you know, uh, computer science and on uh, uh, innovative ways to support distance and, and online learning. Um, But I hope I hope that we're in a place where like, you know, a year from now, maybe a year and a half from now, we might be going back to in in school learning and then therefore we have to really focus on how do we build those relationships and build those build those uh, opportunities for kids again.
0: About that, though, I mean, right now, of course, we're seeing a huge shift. Everything is remote. Um, and I think people are really struggling, uh, even with classes, like for me too, like how do we make it interactive? How do we still make it interesting? So I'm wondering what you think on how we can make, you know, virtual learning more interactive and I guess engaging despite the fact that there is a huge technology barrier.
1: Well, I think there's a couple parts to this. One is we have to make sure that everybody has the access to the technology, and that's a hard one because not everybody does, and we can tell that this that COVID has set us up to really expose a lot of um, inequity in our system and a whole lot of missed opportunities. You know, we have, you know, these school buildings that in some districts, they went into all the schools and took out all the laptops and checked them out to all the kids. But I don't know if that happened everywhere. I don't know if that happened all over the world. And I don't know, you know, the device is one thing. It's also like the internet connection. And, you know, do you have enough bandwidth in your house to have, three kids plus two woodworking adults online all at the same time. And, um, you know, there's, there's some technical things that need to be dealt with in order to make this all work. But I do think that there's really cool, innovative things. I mean, even zoom is a platform like they've evolved, you know, yeah. breakouts are breakout rooms have become much more, um, much, much, uh, easier to, to manipulate. Uh, we do work in my, in my office, we do work with, uh, on-demand uh, translation. So you can have like simultaneous translation happening at the same time. So that helps for people with different, um, you know, language issues. But I think that there's a lot of teachers out there, especially on Twitter, who have really, really cool ideas about interactions through different platforms, different software, you know, there's like boards there's all these like different little, uh, uh, within Google Slides, there's all different kinds of tools and technology but we got to make sure that the kids are the kids are there to use it. And then I think we all have to remember that if you're in a remote learning situation, you're literally teaching somebody inside their home, and you are a guest in their homes. Like right now, I am in your home; you are in my home. We make allowances for that. So if my like son comes running in, or if the cat walks through, or you know, if you're a kid and your parents are in the back room, background also working, or you've got things going on, we as uh, as a as a society we have to just be recognized like i go on and off camera all the time during staff meetings you know if somebody knocks on the door if my son comes tearing through and we have to remember that as teachers if we're going to have kids in our classes we have to remember that they're sitting in the same houses that all of us are so i think we have to really think about sort of some uh just like norms to like figure out how to be really respectful of each other because we're all sitting in our homes you know and not everybody can close the door and not a, not every kid has a, a dedicated space and not every kid has a dedicated device. You know, they might be sharing with their sister or sharing with their mom. And so we have to, you know, we have to really think about some of the sort of levels of equity that we're, we're, we're dealing with.
0: I think there's so many different things we need to control for um, with remote learning um, because of COVID. And yeah, I think that's something I've learn a lot now too. There's a lot of stuff you can't control. So I think we're learning through it and trying to figure it out on the way. Um, From like all your experiences though at the Department of Education, how did you end up at Discovery?
1: Really honestly, it was sort of, sort of by, sort of by luck and by chance there. Um, Discovery Education, which is now its own company, used to be part of Discovery Communications and Discovery Communications is like, you know, Shark Week and you know yeah. food network and all the the media company and they had a, a pub, public affairs person like a policy person who would go to you know things on the hill that were related to education or technology and I met her and I became friends with her and she told me about this job that was coming up at discovery education and um, DC is close to Maryland and their headquarters was in Silver Spring Maryland just like a couple miles up the road so I applied for the job and uh, it's a really great mix of um, a lot of the different things that are on in my background. So Discovery, my job is I'm the global director for STEM curriculum, so I work internationally and domestically on STEM curriculum and that means that I get to make resources for kids and for teachers. And so it was a really great way for me to think about all the things that I thought were important as a classroom teacher, as a supervisor, as an assistant principal, as a district leader, and then as this national policy world How can you put those in a place where through technology they can scale? I mean, that's the thing about all of us is like, you know, we all have really cool personalities as teachers, maybe. And maybe you're a really wonderful teacher and maybe I was a really great teacher. But until we can figure out how to get ourselves to a whole bunch of people, which technology does help, the curriculum can help you know, you can, if kids have the opportunity, that's this, it's the same sort of belief behind the original common core, right? Which was like, let's make it so everybody gets access to the same kinds of learning information. I think that the idea behind curriculum in general is like, hey, I want everybody to be able to observe weathering of rocks and know what erosion is. Not just me, because my dad was a geologist and we ran up, pulled over the side of the road and looked at it, So how do we make experiences that can translate into different situations, whether it's remote, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in a foreign country, and whether it's, you know, we just have to make sure that we, curriculum to me, it feels like a really cool tool for scale. And that's what I was interested in at the time when I was looking for the job.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned that, um, just the fact that everyone can really just learn from curriculum rather than just a few individual people because of their experiences. Um, what would you say is, I guess, the biggest issue right now with STEM education in the US?
1: Hmm. I think it was pro- it's probably this, this idea of how do you um, successfully engage people in a remote situation. I think the thing for me is that STEM to me means hands on, it means getting yeah. your hands dirty, and it means working with a team. And that to me are the two pieces that get left out the most in a in a remote learning environment where there's no interaction in person and so my curriculum resource that i created is all about like group group work right and teamwork i even work together online totally i mean i do it all the time my teams and i we all interact online you know there are people on my team that work for me that i've never met in person and they're a great part of my team we collaborate together online all the time we're adults you know we, or it's different than being a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 22-year-old, you know? Yeah. So when you're trying to do hands-on stuff with like stuff, because like science needs stuff, like you got to like some equipment and some, you need to like get your, like get your hands dirty and also like get out into the world. That's harder to do. And so I think for, for me, the biggest issue in STEM is how to like authentically do hands-on in a remote situation. Does that mean that like we need to like ship sets of like materials to kids so they can do it in their house? Does it mean that we as educators have to rethink what tools kids have to use so that they can find them all in their kitchen? Hopefully, like some of it's that, you know, um, is it, how do we communicate with parents and families then that like we want your kid to like rummage through your, (laughs) <laughs> you know your fridge or your you know uh you know pantry to find you know baking soda and antacid tablets and salty crackers like you know we got to we got to figure out how to communicate that because not every kid lives in a place where the parents are going to be like yeah sure go for it you know take take whatever you need because they're also trying to manage their own life and they might have other kids at home trying to do everything so i think that for me this how to do authentic hands-on hands-on learning in a fully remote world, like that to me feels really important to figure out. And some of it can be solved through virtual labs and, you know, online interactives and stuff like that. But I mean, I've done my fair share of like virtual frog dissection. It's not the same as dissecting the frog in person, you know, it's just not the same. So.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Have you seen any examples of people that have been able to navigate remote learning, at least and make it like a little bit more interactive and as hands-on as possible
1: I mean I would say that the discovery education team for science has done a really really good job of thinking about sort of they call it this thing called an anchor phenomena which sounds really like crazy and educator-y but it's more like just like this is something that you might have already experienced in your real life and like don't you just wonder about it so an example that I always think of is, you know, these like, you can get these like little packs at like um, the drugstore or the grocery store, like when you hurt yourself and you could squeeze it and it either turns hot or cold. So it's like these like packs where you like squeeze it together and then it's like nothing. And then all of a sudden it's really cold. It's like a, a, a traveling ice pack or a traveling hot pack. Yeah. And the like chemical reaction to make that happen is really fascinating and they're like, you know, 99 cents at CVS or whatever. And so, but like to, to use that as like the anchor for kids to be interested in chemical reactions, that to me feels like a way to do this. Like take something very simple that we can all, a car crash, everybody's seen a car crash. Can we take the, the, the instant of a car crash and like slow it down in a video and have kids really pay attention to that? Like, what are the forces involved? What is the, what are the effects that are happening? What are the causes? And um, use that as like a, a way to, to ground kids. I think that's a way to do it. Um, we just started to, we just, um, uh, Discovery Education just purchased, uh, partnered with, I don't know, acquired Mystery Science, which is like a very cool platform. And like, they ask things like who invented the emoji and, you know, cool things like that. Um, I think that there's lots of ways to take science learning that way, I think. Um, I think that any educator who thinks about their students as a part of like a team, which is like the family that's sitting in the house behind them is going to do better at this. Because if you do want kids to use materials in the house, you got to think about, you know, the family that's behind them. Um, To me, I feel like that's a, I'd love to see more stories of how that works. Like, you know, take home, I used to do this thing called take home science on the weekends and you used to get like extra credit, which is not really real, but extra credit with me if you did the experiments with your families. And um, I always had parents say, oh, it was really cool, but I didn't know that they were going to need a knife and a box of rice, you know, like
0: next time tell me, you know? Um, so I think we just have to figure out good ways to communicate. So I think one of the things I was also kind of mentioned a little bit is the idea of, um, just like not just STEM, but STEAM and applying STEM to the real world. Um, how do you, uh, think this is best integrated into STEM curriculum and how have you focused on this more with your work?
1: So it's interesting that you ask about STEM and STEAM and there's another one stream and all this stuff. So to me, it feels like there might, might be routine answer for STEM versus STEAM is that like you really can't do STEM without thinking about design implications and you know the aesthetic and like for the user so I prefer to not get too caught up on like whether it's STEM or STEAM you know because arts the arts play matter but I will say that if you just do STEAM And you forget about the arts in and of themselves then you're then kids are really missing out so like there are lots and lots of aspects of fine arts or music or theater that have nothing to do with stem and that's okay and we should be savoring that and honoring that and teaching that and and practicing that um to me i don't think of this s-t-e-n-m as standing for science technology engineering and math although that's a good place to start you know if you don't know anything about STEAM. You don't know anything about STEM. You might want to start with: Are your kids really learning science and technology and engineering and math? That's a good place to start. But to me, I think a bit more of as like a problem-solving approach. Like yeah. to me, STEM is more like: Here's a really big problem. We don't have enough clean water for everybody in the world. Like we have a finite number of, m- amount of fresh water, anyways, in the world. We only have three percent of the, you know, of the world's water is fresh. So you know, the rest is salty. So, and we don't have enough that's clean and drinkable for everybody. So how can we fix that? What, what are some things that we can do? Could we all be using rain barrels? Could we, would we, could we be, you know, thinking about ways to conserve water in our homes? Um, could we be using refillable water bottles rather than buying bottles of water? Like, you know, that's a problem. And so the approach to solving it is to think through these different lanes of like, well, how much water do I use and how much water do I waste and how much water do I have access to and how do do I pay for my water? So to think through the problem solving approach is to me what, what STEM is. And I don't really feel like there's very much that you can learn about STEM that isn't in the real world. Like the theoretical, like sort of just like just learning, you know, math problems. Math problems are important because they're usually in context, you know, like uh, you know, I used to wear. I used to be this the math teacher that like wore all the like goofy math T-shirts, you know. And I would always have somebody come up to me in the grocery store and be like, "Oh, I never learned. I never used any of that algebra stuff." And I'd be <laughs> like, "I bet you you used it today in the grocery store." And we would have this whole conversation about, you know, unit price or you know, percentage off or you know, things that you knew were going to go on sale next week, so you didn't buy them this week. So like the idea of budgeting and planning. And I'm like, "You're using it right now." So to me, it feels like. Um, I feel like uh, the way that I've always thought STEM could be more successful is to really hook, hook, hook the learning on something that really matters. Like clean water really matters to me. Maybe it's not as important in your world, in your in your neighborhood, because you have a lot of water and you don't have ever experienced a drought. Maybe what's really important to you is um, cleaning up trash, uh, and so like more, you know, proposing more recycling. Maybe what's really important to you is you live in an agricultural area and you're thinking about you know how to. You know, uh, uh, harvest crops properly. Maybe you live in a place where transportation is a really big issue and you need to think about ways to get to school or to home that are cleaner and safer for everybody. So, you know, we, we, on my work right now, we use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and that's a lot in the last six minutes of our talk together. But United Nations um, set these Sustainable Development Goals several years ago and about 130 or so countries signed up to to agree to work on them. And those goals um, being like sort of the, the baseline foundation for all the work we do. It's been a really great way to like say to a kid, you're eight and you're working on solar energy, but so are scientists and engineers and, and uh, thinkers all over the world. We're all working on solar energy. So y- your work is not just a, a, a textbook. It's not just something that your teacher made up. It's something that we're all working on and it's really important and it's going to help people.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I guess the last question I have, uh, just because the name of my podcast is Lightbulb Moment, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was still wondering if you had any notable lightbulb moments that led you to any realizations that still affect you today.
1: Well, I would definitely say that when um, when when Sasha told me good luck, you know, uh, I always think about that as one of my my lightbulb experiences. I also think, um, I had a moment with my, my husband who, when we were, when we were dating, he asked me why I worked in the schools that I did and the schools that, um, uh, you know, that were, you know, suffer, you know, New York city has a lot of like t- schools and, you know, six, at the time I was there, there was 631 high schools and you know, that's yeah. a lot of high schools. And he said, why would you work at the ones that you did? And I said, because those, those kids need me more. And I think that, um, and I also will say another moment for me was that um, I've talked to a lot of schools about teachers and, and which teachers should work with which kids. And I always say, take your best kid, best teachers and give them to the kids that you think are going to struggle the most. Because a lot of times in high schools and middle schools, the best teachers are the ones that are teaching like calculus and trigonometry and physics and stuff. And I always say, take the best teachers and put them with the kids that you think are going to struggle the most, the incoming freshmen who you know are coming in behind credits or whatever because that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to take my work and I always thought it was the best feeling ever when a student of mine who didn't think that they could do something would get that power of, wow, oh, I know how to factor now, or I get it. I understand the quadratic equation and, or like, I solved this problem all on my own. And those moments to me always feel the most powerful is when we, um, when kids especially see themselves as people who have a solution. And so I always use the phrase solution seeking. So we're not really problem solvers because these problems are pretty big. We're not solving them. You know, lots of people are working on solar energy. Nobody solved it yet. Right. But we can all find our own solution. We can seek for it. We can look for it. So I always use that phrase solution seekers. And so I guess my moment would be anytime that you yourself have sought a solution and found something that worked, there you go. There's your light bulb moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And for anyone listening in, where can they find you online or on social media? So I'm at Kamsie McAdams
1: on Twitter. Also, I'm, um, that's like my biggest place where I do STEM stuff. Um, I'm on Instagram, but um, I'm, it's also mostly just pictures of my son and I uh, goofing around and learning about the world. Uh, Occasionally my cat is on there too. And my husband um, but, uh, you can find me, um, on, uh, Twitter at, at @camsy_mcAdams, McAdams, all one word. And, um, also I'm always, always happy, you know, if you DM me, I'm happy to connect with you on, on email. I'm at discoveryed.com and I'm happy to engage with any of your listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And, and good luck to you. And I'm uh, really glad to have been a part of your podcast.
0: All right, everyone. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Lightbulb Moment, you can find us on Instagram at Lightbulb Moment Podcast and on Twitter at Lightbulb Moment, where the last E is an X. And if you want to learn more about me, your host, personally, you can find me on Instagram at Jyothi Ramaswamy and on Twitter at Jyothi underscore Ramaswamy. All right, that's it for this week. I will see you all next week. Bye. <laughs>